So as I was reading through this chapter and kind of thinking about all the amazing chapters we've had through First and Second Samuel, it kind of reminds me, this chapter kind of reminds me of like, there's, when you think about movies, there's summer blockbusters all the time with big, cool aliens and explosions and they cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make and everybody floods the box office to see them. And then you have like kind of some smaller movies that don't get as much attention. It's not David and Goliath. It's not the scandal of David and Bathsheba. It's not David defeating all these um, other nations. You have a, a chapter where you read it and it doesn't necessarily look like a big summer blockbuster movie, but as I read through it this week, there are some amazing truths about our God. And it reminds me actually more of like a movie that doesn't get a big, big summer blockbuster billing, but it ends up winning a bunch of Oscars because it's so well done and it's so well written and it speaks to so many different people. So just kind of as we go through this chapter, that was just kind of the, the way that I pictured it. The last few chapters, we, like I said, we've had David at his high point winning these big battles, and, and he's expanded the kingdom to the largest that it's been. And then we see at his zenith, just he decides to just stay home. And at the time, a few weeks ago, we talked about how at the time when the kings go to battle, David stayed home. And then we saw David's fall with Bathsheba, and then James talked about the fallout from that. And, and then last week, just how heartbreaking um, the whole story with Amnon and um, Tamar. And um, this week, we get to see in chapter 14, we, we get to kind of see this journey that continues now for David. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1. And we'll go through the whole chapter. And then there's a couple things that I want to look at at the end, um, what we learn about God and what we learn about Jesus and what we learn about the Holy Spirit. So verse 1. Chapter 14, now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Verse two, and Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. Say, Joab put, so Joab put the words in her mouth. So, what we have here starting off, Joab talks this lady into coming before the king, and he tells her what he wants her to say to the king. And the whole goal that Joab has is to reunite Absalom with his dad. Absalom, we saw in the last chapter, has killed his half-brother Amnon because Amnon slept with his full sister. He raped his full sister, Tamar. So she will go and tell him a story, and it's similar to kind of what we saw unfold a couple of weeks ago when Nathan tells David this story. It's just this story meant to really get David to go, wait a second, hey, that's wrong. And then Nathan's like, yeah, I know, I'm talking about you. And so they're kind of using the same method here, and they want the same goal, for, for King David to see the error of his way and change his mind. Verse 4, when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to him. And said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. Verse 7. 
And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother, whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. She paints this picture. We have these two boys. They got in this fight. One has killed the other. Now if, if, he give, if his life is given for this life, now my husband and I have no heir. We have our family name ends. It's over for us. So... She tells the story, and again, she's referring to Absalom and Amnon, and Joab wants mercy for Absalom. He is also the future heir to the throne, and Joab knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. There are some Bible scholars that think Joab maybe was a little bit deceitful in this because Joab wanted a place in Absalom's future kingdom, possibly. Let's continue in verse 8. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Verse 11. Then then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, David, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So David goes for this plan. He goes along with what Joab wanted. He goes along with what she's requesting. He chooses mercy over justice. He said exactly what Joab wanted to hear. And this seems nice, but David is actually showing questionable judgment here. We all want mercy, but in this situation, he's showing some, it's, questionable his decision. In the time since then, we know he's committed some terrible sins, some horrible mistakes. He's made some um, decisions as a result of that that are not quite where he was. I think it was 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8 where it talks about his decision-making and his wisdom and all of this stuff. And now because of some of the things that he's fallen himself into or some of the choices that he's made, he's kind of off a little bit. And I can't tell you just, I think like for me, what I've witnessed in parenting and as a dad and talking with people after church or before church or throughout the week, I see a lot of people who let their past mistakes really kind of hinder them from being able to make wise choices and decisions regarding their kids. And now I was a knucklehead before I got saved and I wasn't walking with the Lord and I did some stupid stuff. But then I got saved, and I started living for Jesus, and then now I can see clearly, and and by God's grace, I have some wisdom in my life. And now my past mistakes, that has nothing to do with the direction and the guidance and the discipline that I need to instruct my kids with. I see too many parents that'll kind of disqualify themselves. Well, I know when I was their age, I did this, or, you know, I'm not perfect either. Of course not, and you should be honest about that. But that does, not qual- that does not disqualify you from ruling rightly and justly when it comes to pointing your kids in the right direction. My past has nothing to do with my kids' present. Has nothing to do with it. My life is totally different than theirs. So we have David, king and judge, faced with the question of mercy or justice. 
And Matt has kind of touched on this topic a couple of times over the past few weeks, um, or in the last month or so, I guess, in 2 Samuel, but also in Mark 14. A couple weeks ago, um, Matt was teaching out of Mark 14, and he's talking about that Jesus, uh, Jesus is with the woman, and she's pouring out the oil, and there's kind of this question about whether that is wasted, and Matt touched on the topic surrounding two words that have kind of come up a lot recently, sadaqah and mizpah, justice and righteousness. Um, and in that, he addresses a couple of issues that we face in our community. I'd recommend listening to it if you haven't had a chance to catch those. But sadaqah and mizpah, justice and righteousness, mercy and judgment. And I loved what he said in closing. There needs to be a healthy tension between the two. If you aren't in conflict or tension when it comes to justice and righteousness, if you're so completely sure that you're right about one of them, then there's a good chance that you probably are wrong. For one side of the issue, it can always seem like it's easy and clear, but we need to have a little bit of tension in that. And let me give you a kind of an extreme example. Um, I have a friend who texted me yesterday and a former football player that he coached in Las Vegas, just got arrested for murder. He's 18, great football player, just got arrested. Grew up in a rough home. Now, the other family wants justice. This boy's mom wants mercy. You can see the tension for both. Man, this kid has grown up with such this rough life and, and he got mixed up with the wrong crowd and then he's downtown Las Vegas when he shouldn't be and he falls into a situation with some guys where he's doing stuff he shouldn't do. And now somebody has lost their life and they want justice and then you've got this boy's mom and she wants mercy for her boy. My uncle is a detective in Dublin, homicide detective. And he said it didn't matter how bad the person was, he called him his clients. When he showed up on the scene and he saw somebody who was laying there in their 40s, 50s, 30s, whatever, laying there dead, because of some of their life choices and some of the things that they'd got mixed up in. He said the first thing that would come into his mind that was that at some point, this guy was held as a baby by their mom. And she never envisioned that this would be how things would end. That this mom would constantly want mercy for her son. That his life would not turn out this way. So we, we should live in this tension, justice and mercy. Um, we're going to take a closer look at this towards the end um, with a couple of other key points from this chapter, but continuing on in verse 12. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. And David says, yeah, speak. Verse 13, and the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. David, you're saying that my hypothetical situation with my two boys, there should be mercy for my son. Why are you not giving that same mercy to Absalom? I'm talking about your son. The kingdom needs him. The heir to the throne, why will you not show the same mercy to Absalom? 14, she says, we must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, 
and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. She says, David, listen, life is spilled out. One time. You have one time to make things right with people. One time for reconciliation. One time for forgiveness. For your sake. For the sake of the kingdom. For the sake of the church. For the sake of your family. For the sake of your own personal health. Reconciliation and forgiveness. It's an important thing for us to take note of. Verse 15. She continues on. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. The future king has been banished, she's saying. He's the heir. The people need him to return. Verse 17. And your servant thought, The word of my Lord the King will set me at rest, for my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Verse 18. Then the King answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my Lord the King speak. He's like, Listen, I'm going to ask you a question. Be honest with me. Verse 19. The King said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? It's almost like, I think we've seen like when somebody's kind of being deceiving with us, the more they talk, the more you're like, this sounds like, this doesn't sound like you. This is coming from somebody else. David says, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered, as surely as you live, my Lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king has said. It was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. Verse 20. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Verse 21, then the king said to Joab, behold now, I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. David says, bring my son back into the kingdom. Verse 22, and Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. David grants this request to bring Absalom back, but listen to what he says next. Verse 23. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Verse 24. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. It looks like reconciliation. It looks like forgiveness. But reconciliation is an all or nothing thing. You don't go halfway with it. David doesn't commit. It's like he's, he's almost kind of just doing this to appease them. This isn't the same bold, wise, convicted David that we've seen before. Bring him back but I don't want to see him. It's so sad. Um, I mean, we know the statistics uh, on kids being rejected by their dad, and some of you in here have experienced that or you've seen that or witnessed it. And again, we're going we're gonna to kind of look at this a little bit deeper as we finish this chapter, but chapter, or verse 25. Now in all Israel, there is no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom was. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. 
Verse 26, and when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight, like six pounds. So just probably this thick, black, like coarse hair. It would be about six pounds at the end of every year when he cut it. I'm not sure why that's included in there, although Absalom's hair does play a role in this a little bit later as we read further on. Verse 27, there was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was beautiful. We have a section here in chapter 14 where, again, we have a heavy emphasis, again, placed on the outward appearance. We've seen it over and over with Saul, and then we've seen it with, um, like, not only just outward appearance, but also accomplishments with David. Heavy emphasis, outward appearance, accomplishments. Of course, David was overlooked for his appearance and age, but he was held in high esteem, deservedly so, for his military conquests. But we keep getting reminded that these aren't necessarily the things that God is looking at. Appearance, outward success, not necessarily an indicator of leadership. In fact, in the New Testament, we get a glimpse of what godly leadership looks like. 1 Timothy 3 the qualification for an overseer. The saying is trustworthy, chapter one, verse three. I mean, First Timothy chapter three, verse one. The saying is trust, trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, we haven't seen that from David recently, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." We kind of see the opposite of what has played out recently in 2 Samuel. The people closest in the home, as we see here in Timothy, they're the ones that see the peaks and the valleys, not just the peaks, not just the long flowing hair, not just the giant military conquest. They see the consistency from day to day. And the older I get, my goals in life are, I think, aligning hopefully more with God's kingdom. It's not like I want to be more like Tom Brady. It's not I want to be more like Elon Musk. I, I, watch, I watch Mark Scudstad walk in, and he's got all of his kids here on Sunday, and he's got all of his grandkids. And I watch that Dick Worthington come in here on Sunday, and he's got all of his kids, and he's got all of his grandkids. And the older I get, I look at that, and I'm like, that's it. That's what I want. I want my kids and my grandkids to be fellowshipping in the house of the Lord. And I think that kind of leadership, I think that's what David is lacking here at this time. It's kind of in that secret, that the secret parts of our life. Let's continue on, verse 27. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Tamar named after his sister, who was raped by Amnon. Did a little, kind of, just some digging and some research on this, and just kind of dove into 
Absalom a little bit as I was looking at this, and a lot of Bible scholars believe this is just yet another glimpse of how deeply emotional Absalom is, very much like David. He was deeply hurt by, with Tam- by what happened to Tamar, so much so that he kills his stepbrother. And then he's so deeply affected by it that he has this daughter, and he names her Tamar so he can be reminded. So, I mean, it's out of respect for his sister. He has acted out of anger. He's killed his brother. We're going to see more of his emotional side to come. David was emotional and reactionary. You've got Bathsheba. You see some of the Psalms that he pens, very emotional. Nathan, he gets all fired up when he hears what happened from Nathan, and he's just reactionary. And I've, I've recently kind of been rereading through a couple of books, and it, it reminded me of something that I've read recently in a book called The War Against Boys. Written by a self-proclaimed, she says she's a self-proclaimed feminist, but she lays out all the ways the feminist movement, prevailing strategy, tra- uh, strategy, tragedy as well, is to work against young men. She's been kind of canceled by some of her peers for some of the studies that she's highlighted. But there's an interesting section of the book where she talks about emotions and feelings. Now, emotions are good. They're God-given. Feelings are good. Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of laughter. We should have these deeply emotional moments in our life. But like everything else, they need to have their place. So the author of this book, Christina Hoff Summers, writes, 22 years ago, in 2000, she wrote this. We are the first culture that has shamed young men for controlling their emotions. We have made stoicism out to be a bad thing. Coming on the heels of the 90s, the big push, and many of you probably were in school during this time, the big push, continuing to talk about your feelings and talk about your emotions and writing these things down and and being more expressive, and boys at times kind of guilted into not really feeling those things. And what study after study was finding, and they kept kind of pushing it away, is it's not always necessary, it's not always productive, and oftentimes there's a very negative reaction. They found that girls, in over-talking their feelings, it could lead to more depression and anxiety. And they found with young men, boys, it wasn't necessarily that they felt like embarrassed to share their feelings. They found absolutely no benefit to it. So you have boys that are like, I'll write about that, I'll talk about it, but I don't know what the point of it is. It just doesn't matter to me. And of course, that is not all boys, and that is not all girls. But by and large, study after study, she was finding this. And yet boys were kind of being prodded in, well, you need to share more. You need to, and they're just like, okay, something must be wrong with me. I think sometimes, especially recently, in the last couple decades, we have seen that has been something that guys have kind of felt guilty about, and young men have felt guilty about. We've, she says... We have created an overly emotional and self-absorbed generation of teenage girls and have shamed quiet, emotionally controlled young men. She wrote that in 2000, 22 years ago. And some of those people that grew up during that time are now adults. So I'm just going to leave that there. Verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Verse 29, then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And then he said to his servants, see Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. 
So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Twice Absalom says to Joab, send for Joab. I want to go see the king. I want to go see my dad. I've been here two years. What is going on? I'm perfectly fine living my life in, in Gesher. I, I, I'm, life is normal. You brought me here, and now I'm not even getting a chance to talk to my dad. I'm not getting a chance to, to actually interact with him. What am I doing here? What is going on? So he, he's prodding Joab, and Joab is not responding. So he just says, go set his field on fire. Apparently, legally, now they would have to have some sort of interaction. I wouldn't recommend this if somebody's not responding to you, but in this situation, it gets, Absalom, uh, it gets Joab's attention. Verse 31, then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I might send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. He's like, I just want to talk to him. And I don't even care if he finds me guilty. Kill me. But just sitting here for this two years, nothing happening. It's, I'm done with it. So Joab gets involved. He sees this need for reconciliation. He doesn't do a good job of walking with him through this. And I think shepherding is really a lot like reconciliation. If you don't help all the way through it, a lot of times you can do more harm than good. I would not recommend getting involved like Joab, where you present somebody to somebody else and then don't help them through that situation. Not a good tactic. Verse 33, then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. They appear to be reconciled, but my, oh my, is Absalom hurt. Very hurt. We're going to see this play out in the coming chapters. So what does this chapter tell us about God? What does this tell us about Jesus? I think what we see here, we're going to look at two verses. What we see here is a contrast of earthly kings and earthly fathers compared to a heavenly king and a heavenly father. There's two verses that stand out to me. Verse 14, it's that part where she comes and she's talking to King David and she says, you know, we're going to be spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. And she's talking about reconciliation then. But then she says this beautiful thing, absolutely beautiful. She says, he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. He, God, devises means so that, so that those who have been banished will not remain an outcast. And then the flip side of this in verse 24, King David says, after he said, yeah, bring him on in, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. <clears throat> Heartbreak. So in verse 14, first, he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. This is being, a, this is being just and justifier. We see it in Romans 3. David had a good run. Great king. Great decision maker. Ruled right. Ruled fairly. David falls into dark times. Questionable decision making. Here we see David rules with mercy, but no justice. He rules with forgiveness, but no acceptance. He appears to be loving, but he's not sharing truth. And we are reminded there is one who always rules rightly, who always rules fairly, who always rules justly. Only one who can do those things. The mitzpah and sadaqah. Romans says Jesus was not only just, but also the justifier. 
Romans 3.23 is where it starts. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus offers justice for the wronged, and he justifies the wronged. One king who always rules rightly, fairly, justly, and justifies Jesus. It's crazy to think about. This makes it where we, as his kids, don't have to live in verse 24 out of the king's presence. Remember, Jesus, uh, David says, bring him in. He's not to come into my presence. We all know, perhaps you are, one of the brokenhearted people who've been walking around just the survivor of fatherlessness. Whole life dealing with the sting of an absent father who's rejected them. In this, this book, again, that I've kind of come back to, Disciplines of a Godly Man, they say the longing is so strong, especially for young boys to be accepted by their earthly fathers, that it can trigger senses, like primal senses in you, like the sense of smell. And it's true, even for me in my own life. I had a very involved father, and I can remember as a seven-year-old him coming home, and he had the, the uh, black, like, Danner boots, leather boots with the laces that went all the way up. And I remember me and my brother fighting over who got to unlace his boots, these, these sweaty, hot leather boots, the empty igloo cooler that mom had packed with his lunch that day, the smell of asphalt on his jeans and on his shirt from uh, running the, the grader or, you know, doing road work or whatever it was throughout the day. I can remember that, his excitement of scooping me up on his shoulder, and just like the smell of all those things come, comes back to me. And I have been blessed because I had his involvement in my life. And from time to time, people will say something like, oh man, you guys are doing so great as a family and you got, you know, your kids are great and you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and I appreciate that. And I, yes, that's great. And, and I'm not perfect. And I know all of that. And, and then I'm reminded quickly of 1 Corinthians 15, 10 that says it is but by the grace of God. I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, and it has been the motivating factor in my life. I realized I grew up with something that not a lot of people had. That was by God's grace that I had an involved dad, and it has is, it is motivated me to not waste that grace. Paul said, I didn't want that grace to be in vain. I did not want to waste it, and I've had the same message with my own kids. I'm, let's not waste his grace. So I would leave the home at 6.45 and I would go teach and then I would coach football and I'd get home at like 6.45 when our kids were little and they would be waiting as little boys and my daughter was a baby probably at the time in the front yard just waiting there. I pull in the driveway and I'd barely get out of the car and they would come running over and like try to tackle me and it would be one versus two, one v two football in the front yard. I'm dead tired but I didn't want to waste that grace. And I pray that they have the smell of the fresh cut grass and dad's stinky, sweaty coach's shirt or my whistle or whatever it is, and that they would then not waste that grace. 
And I would remind them of Luke chapter 12, verse 48, that says, those who have been given much, much is expected. And you guys have lived a life that is different than some of your friends and some of your classmates. You've been given much. Not everybody has. And don't waste that. My wife calls it an ocean of grace. It's so fitting. When you jump into the ocean, like if you're just swimming, like the depth of it can take your breath away. And, I, and, and sometimes if you let yourself think about it, it can take your breath away. How good and gracious our God is. Don't waste that. I also know the flip side. I'm keenly aware that that is not the same story for everybody. My, my wife's dad left when she was three. PTSD, Vietnam vet. Didn't want to be a dad. And I picture her, I see these pictures of how cute she was and just how sweet and kind she is and just like, I think of just like who she is as a person and it makes me sad that he missed out on that but he had his own things that he was dealing with, his own struggles. And she gets invited to a middle school camp as an eighth grader and she leaves LA or whatever it is um, at the time and she goes to Colorado River and she's at this camp and she hears the gospel. And she hears that she has a heavenly father that loves her and accepts her and is wild about her. And the gospel penetrates her heart and she gets baptized in the Colorado River. And she, for the rest of her days to this point, has lived and walked out this life full of joy and peace and full forgiveness of her dad. No animosity. She knows that her heavenly father is far and above greater than any dad she could have had here on earth. Exceeds our best day not even comparable as dad's. And so that has been her story. If you're here tonight and you've experienced the crushing defeat of being rejected by your earthly father or by your own choices, you found yourself on the outside of the kingdom as an outcast. You have to be reminded. God the father is the only one who will never fail you. The heavenly father. The best earthly father will fail you. My dad was not perfect. He, he probably frustrated me yesterday. I probably frustrated my kids today. But our heavenly father will not fail us. He is the only one who will love us and accept us without fail. You can feel wholly, completely loved and accepted when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when we are forgiven, redeemed, and made alive by his spirit. You probably, many of you probably know this. Many of you may need to share this with those around you. Your heavenly father sees you. He loves you. He accepts you. And how do I know all that? Because Jesus tells us that. Nathaniel, skeptical, Jesus has been resurrected. He's not ascended into heaven, and he's a skeptic. Does, can anything good come from there? Really, this Jesus guy, what? Like, and Jesus is talking with him. And there's this thing that Jesus says to Nathaniel. He says, underneath the fig tree, Nathaniel, I saw you there. I saw you underneath the fig tree. And Nathaniel does this 180. It completely flips for him. He stops, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. 
It was in that moment, Nathaniel, whatever was going on in Nathaniel's life, he had this moment where he was alone, where he was by himself. Jesus touches on a tender moment that Nathaniel had in his life. I was there. I saw you, Nathaniel. Whatever Nathaniel was going through, Jesus knew that it was something that would strike a chord with him. And when Jesus says, I was there, Nathaniel is completely changed. More than just seeing you, he accepts you. He loves you. He's excited about you. Zephaniah 2.17, he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And David was the earthly example, but Jesus tells us the story of a heavenly example. You know the story. It's in parable form. Upon the return of the prodigal son, the one who said, no thanks, I'll do it myself. I want all your blessings, but I don't want a relationship with you. Just give me everything, but I don't even want to deal with you. The heavenly father, Jesus says, when his son returns after that attitude towards him, the heavenly father is watching and waiting and runs to him. It's in Luke 15. And it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And he said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. When my son comes home from college, I have steaks for the whole family sitting on the counter. And he cocks in and he says, we killing the fattened calf? And I said, yes, we are. We celebrate. Listen, Christian, know this. Our heavenly father accepts us and loves us and is excited about us. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, for all who put their faith and trust in him, he is just and he is justifier. He rules rightly and fairly and graciously. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we pray as your sons and daughters. We pray that we would continually let your grace compel us, move us, overwhelm us to a deeper and deeper relationship with you, our Father. I pray that we would swim in it. I pray that it would take our breath away. I pray like the perfectly warmed sun on our face that your grace would be something we would bask in. Again, I pray that we would be those that are keenly aware of what you are doing in our lives and that that grace would motivate us I pray that we would be those that are reminded daily that we have a heavenly father that will not disappoint. I pray that it would be a message that would be on our lips. I pray in a broken and confused world that wants justice and wants righteousness, that we would be reminded that Jesus is both, that Jesus is both just and justifier, that Jesus always rules rightly, and Jesus always offers mercy and grace. We thank you for your word. 
pray that we would glorify you with our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.